I'm going to start by telling you a story that has in some ways become a myth. I'm not sure if it's perfectly accurate at this point, but I will tell you as it lives inside my soul. My mom likes to travel in a very specific way. It generally means having a stable base camp and a few trusted locals. And so whenever we would touch down somewhere, traveling as a young kid and 10, 11, 12, something in that range, I believe, she would always make friends with a taxi driver or some local, get their number, and we would basically hire this person to hang out with us while we were there. This story starts in Ixtapa, Mexico, specifically Club Med. But I'll start by when we landed and met our taxi driver, Seltzo. The first thing anyone notices when being driven in Seltzo's taxi was his thumb. He held the steering wheel in a way where it protruded and you could see his very long thumbnail. And I remember as a kid asking him, why do you have this long thumbnail? And he said, because I like it. (laughs) And not giving us an ounce more. And the way he said it, very clearly indicating that's all you're going to get about this mysterious long thumbnail. But he drove us and as my mom does, she won him over like she pretty much does with everybody. And we now had a number to call Seltzo for just about anything one could possibly need, which might include taking your preteen son out on a authentic Mexican adventure, or at least a local Mexican's idea of what a preteen American's authentic Mexican adventure should entail. And so that's what happens. Seltzo picked me up. I was so excited. I had no idea what to expect. This is obviously a story that doesn't work in 2022. <laughs> like, can you imagine going to another company, getting a taxi driver? I mean, maybe it didn't work when it happened. I don't know, but it didn't seem out of place at the time. Met a taxi driver who took you from the airport to your resort and then called the taxi driver to take your preteen child out on the town, basically. But that's the story. And that's what we did. I jumped in. He had this amazing music on. And I remember him showing me the CD cover. It was a, a white church on a sandy beach. It said something like, Iglesia La Bonita, which I will try to dig up this burned CD. I'm sure I have it somewhere. But it was very fun, Central American, rhythmic dance music. As we drove out of the resort town and into, I actually don't remember what town we went to, but a more authentic town, at least in in Seltzo's eyes, we hopped out of the car and started doing stuff. The first place he took me to was a bar, and we got a soul beer. And this might have been the first beer I ever had where I didn't have to hide it. Like it was at the table with a man who was looking at me, encouraging me. to drink the beer. Great times. The adventure continued on. Now, like all great coming-of-age stories being led by a local taxi driver in a coastal Mexican town, it ends up at a strip club, which was something else for me. I don't think I was quite ready for it. I'll spare you the strip club details, but I will tell you that the story ends up at the bar of the strip club where the bartender is bringing us beers and water. And when the bartender slash waitress asks if I want ice with my water, Seltzo puts his hand over the cup and says, no ice. (laughs) 
Now, when the waitress left, he went on to explain to me that the stomach is a furnace. It's meant to be hot. You never, ever put ice in water or ice in any of your drinks because why would you want to cool down your furnace? you got to keep it hot. I've never bothered to fact check that or see if there's any validity to that, but that has become a hard and fast rule from that day until now. That is still the case if you take me to a restaurant. Hi, would you like some water? No ice. Sam would like no ice with his water because you got to keep the furnace hot. Celso is an interesting character in my life because it led to this one moment that ends up with me changing the way I drink water probably until my dying day. But the character of Celso is not Celso. The character is my memory of the brief experience of this moment of time of being in the Extapa area in Mexico with a new guy who's taking me on an epic adventure for a 12-year-old or however old I was. But Celso is his own person with his own dreams and desires and experiences and trials and triumphs and loves and heartbreaks and victories and devastations and I would attribute this way of thinking to a an adolescent way of thinking you see people as characters in your life because that's how it's experienced from the human experience you see through your eyes that go into your body into your memories and your body's memories and you experience these brief moments of these people's experience in some shared experience, sorry to get crazy with this, but essentially what I'm saying is they become memories, that those shared experiences become characters in your drama, in your play, in your odyssey of your human experience. But eventually you start to realize that these characters in your life, maybe not everyone realizes, but maybe this is an opportunity to start really exploring this idea that every character in your life, every single person you've ever interacted with, whether it be the barista that you've gone to for five years or the gym owner or the bus driver or the taxi driver or even that person that you bumped into on a subway one time 10 years ago, that every single person you've ever met has their own human experience. They have their own things that matter to them, their own things that they're going through. Obviously, you cannot hold that lens of seeing the world for sustained periods of time. You will have to go back to your human experience. That is your base camp. But to to expand your experience, to be able to incorporate the possibility that everyone that you experience has their own life going on, it's eye-opening. And it also will help you in ways that are pretty hard to articulate. But it will help you start to see maybe just for moments at a time that you are not just an individual, but you are a part of something larger. Our guest today was one of my Sunday school teachers. His name is Mark Iaconelli. We did not go to the highest production church. A lot of things were held together with duct tape and love and care. We didn't have the nicest facilities. We didn't have the most together programming. But Mark came in for a period of time and was kind of the 
superstar youth pastor. And what's funny is that I remember our time together very differently than he remembers it. Part of that is because of this phenomenon that I'm talking about, that all of our experiences and all the way that we can take in other people's experiences are still rooted in the central experience of me, of I. And this interview was fun because in a way, it's like part of the journey of going back to your genesis and revisiting these things that you just assumed were concrete, which, by the way, can be a dangerous adventure. I'm not saying you should go into such adventures carelessly because some things were written in stone the way you writ them in stone for good reason. It turns out while Mark Iaconelli was coming to church and inspiring me and always finding a smile that he had his own stuff going on, his own losses, his own hardships. And what I experienced was him momentarily transcending those hard experiences to come and deliver an amazing experience for 12-year-old me or however old I was. There's also the funny added part of this, which is that I had remembered our time with me being the still being the bright-eyed good boy and talking to him revealed something different. And so this is a fun journey. Not only is Mark a great author, who's the author of a new book, Between the Listening and the Telling, it's a good book, and this is a good man. He's also somebody that had become a character in my life. And to revisit that with him in this discussion, I hope playfully encourages you to revisit some of the characters in your life. And some of them you won't get to have a conversation with, but to get to meditate on the idea that, wow, that person that came and knocked my socks off for a speech that one time at a school assembly, like that person had a life. I wonder what it was. And the next time you're in traffic and someone is acting like a total dickhead, you can look over to them and go, wow, I wonder, I wonder what their mom's like. I wonder what it was like to be raised as them. John Koenig coined the word in 2012, Sonder, which is what I've just been speaking about. The realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and as complex as your own. But more than that is realizing that we as humans are creatures of story. We collect them, we tell them, they're meaningful to us, and in some very real way, we are story. I think more than animal, we are a collection of stories. Making space to learn people's stories around you, even the people that you think might not be important to your story, it will blow you away what you hear when you begin the sacred art of telling your story to strangers. I think that's what Mark was after when he wrote this book, covering the topic and the power of stories and telling stories and hearing stories and using story as a way for us to connect to something deeper than our outside human wants and desires, but something shared even by the most vicious of enemies. And so here is my conversation with Mark Iaconelli, which is a, a fun and deep conversation between two generations of men, one who helped mentor the other, but reflecting now back on that time and on their own lives together as adult men. Here is my conversation with Mark Iaconelli. Hey, Mark. Hi, Sam. It's been a little time. It's been a long time. 20 years, maybe? 
Yeah, you yeah. are an interesting character in my life because you come from the black hole zone of my life because I was oh. I was high from 12 to 22 pretty much. I think we met before I started using drugs. Is that you know, I don't know. Did you get a druggy vibe from me? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's hard to know when you're with young teenagers where the druggy vibe is. You know, there's yeah. a lot of experimentation going on with personality and all kinds of stuff. But I met you in this Sunday school class that you, I think you were brought there against your will, probably. A lot, sometimes it was just you and me. Sometimes it was you and me and maybe two other kids or something like that. And, you know, you had that kind of feeling of like, I, I, I'm, I'm a hostage here. You're looking at the clock, trying to figure out how to get out of there. I had a lot of empathy for you. It's like, yeah, this is not something I would want to be doing if I was 13 years old, be here at this or 12 years old. So I don't know what the, what the drug use was, whether that was happening or not. I just knew I have to figure out how to find life in this person because you were shut down is what I remember. You, you, were, you were there, not there. Oh, wow. Okay. So, but, but which is not unusual for teenagers at that age, just go like, okay, whatever this is. It's kind of the school persona. Like I'm in school, my body's here, but I'm not here. So I had to, and you, and I could tell you'd already been through this routine of whatever church and Sunday school. So I had to try to find ways to shake it up. So I think one time I remember saying, hey, let's go play a game with those yogurt cups. And you were like, what? I was like, yeah, let's take these yogurt cups outside. We're going to invent a game. And I think we went running around the sanctuary playing a cat. You know, we had to catch things kind of like, I, I had to try to get you, knock you off balance is what I remember trying to do. And like, okay, so you don't want to come to church. You had a great line. You said, uh, what kind of God needs to be worshipped? Like this sounds, <laughs> That sounds like me. Yeah, you're like, this is a very insecure God. And I thought that was a great line. So I was like, okay, so if you had to spend this day doing something that was connecting to the ultimate love of the universe, what would you do? And I remember you saying, I'd go to the ocean. I would just spend the day at the ocean. And I remember talking to the church, like, could we just take these kids to the ocean? Like, do they have to stay here? And the answer was, yes, they have to stay here. That's the kind of stuff I was trying to figure out. Where are you? Yeah. Yeah. So the cool thing about talking to you, you have access to these moments of myself that are so fragmented. Mm -hmm. Like, so, it's so hard for me to recall, and that could be, some kind of strange, you know, I've had therapists be like, this is a, this is trauma and you're, you're repressing memories to maybe it was just physically just not recording the data properly uh -huh. or <laughs> whatever it was, or I just have a bad memory, which, you know, yeah, is also possible. You, you have a, a glimpse at a, a part of myself that I don't get to hear about often. This is about you, obviously. Yeah. Well, this episode, but it's, it's cool to have somebody that has a, a more sober and coherent. Well, and I'd rather just have this conversation. So I don't, I don't need it to be about me because like I said, well, I haven't got to talk to you since those moments. So I remember, so I have images of you shut down. To me, this was like an interesting puzzle. So it was like, okay, because like I said, I was in sympathy with you. Like, this is not an exciting room. This is not a great place. It's early Sunday morning. You'd rather be sleeping. I get it. Okay, so how do we come alive? Okay, let's play a game. Okay, let me ask you some weird question. Okay, what if we could kill this God? How would we kill this God? You know, I was trying to come up with questions that would kind of, and you would, you would show up once in a while. Like I'd see you like <laughs> come to the surface. What did you just say? Or what did you ask me? Or actually, you know, or you'd be surprised by some thought would come in your head. And I would see you kind of go, well, actually, this is what I would do. I would just leave. That would kill God. You'd come up with things like that. And I'd say, okay, he, there he is. You know, now he's talking to me for real. So I was trying to find ways like that, like let's have a real 
conversation. And it's kind of like Aikido. Like if you were, you hate this, all right, let's hate it together and let's find something else. But, um, you know, I mean, also you were hurting. I could tell that. Really? So, oh, yeah. Yeah, you were hurting. Did I give you any indication what I was hurting about? Well, we have different, what do we do with hurt? You know, sometimes we just shut down. It's too much or it's overwhelming or I don't want to, I don't want to feel this right now or I need a break or whatever. So I could tell you're hurting and I didn't know what it was or the source of it. I didn't know anything about it. It was just an hour and a half, a week or something I was with you. So I just was waiting to see if it might show up, but I could tell this wasn't good. So how can we have a conversation that's interesting and a life-giving or how can we play? Let's play something. Let's just do something fun. Try to alleviate that a little bit. I think I called your mom one time and said, hey, I'm doing this crazy weird camp up in Washington. It's, you have to take a boat to get to it. They don't have any cars there. It's in the middle of nowhere. And was trying to figure out. I didn't didn't, go, did I? You didn't go. Damn her. (laughs) Damn that woman. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was trying to figure out, like, would that be a place? Because there was other teenagers I knew who were going there. I thought, ah, Sam, he might like this. He might find some, some people there who are. If I had gone to that camp. Yes. I would have graduated college. <laughs> That's right. And I wouldn't have become a meth addict. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. You, you know, it you also, you also might have hated it. Yeah. It's funny. So I actually thought when I was trying to remember our time together, and we'll get to the interview, but this is good stuff. Yeah. And I don't look anything like you. I don't even know if you remember what I, you know, because I'm so yes, much older. You were yeah. the young, spry, <laughs> That's right. cool yeah. uh, church youth pastor. Yeah. The one and only at that church. Yeah. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings if they listen, but you were like the one who like showed up. I don't know if you're caffeinated or like ready to go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was not uh, a dull experience, but it's, it's funny to hear that I was already this angsty, maybe depressed. More depressed than angsty. Of course, this is Sunday morning. So you're, you're sluggish, you're tired, you're being dragged to church, you know? Yeah. It was not church. Yes. That was where I was. Yeah. That was just a period that I, I never grew out of. I still feel that way all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I thought it was from the like very innocent, sweet part. But it sounds like you came later no, in the No, I came, yeah, yeah. I think at that time your mom was trying to figure out where, which school you should go to even. you know, Had I gotten kicked out of a school You yet? might have gotten kicked out of a school. I might have. Some. Wow. So, all right. And then we were talking a little bit before this. I would look for any signs of, sometimes signs of Sam show up, you know. I remember, and I don't know where this was in your journey because we haven't kept in touch or anything like that, but I remember seeing a sculpture you made out of knives. And like I said, you know, it just stuck in my brain because it was just a missing piece from earlier. It was kind of like, this is something really interesting. Like, how did you work with it? How did you not cut yourself? Are these sharp? You had done really interesting things with them. How did you start working with these the first time. And there was some kind of, it communicated something to me about you that, and about all of us actually, that I thought was really truthful. And I thought, okay, there it is. He's onto it. He's onto something alive here. And this is going to be really good. It was a wing made out of blades. Okay. That's what it was. Yes, yes, yes. And it would have been two wings had I more money, time and patience, but it's one wing. Yeah. It's it's, It's a single wing. It was striking. It was beautiful, but it was just dangerous. And I don't know, it's like the way art does, you can't really put it into words because the object itself communicates it. But it was something visceral that I felt when I saw it, which was just like, and I felt glad for you. 
I was like, okay, whatever the hell this is, even if it's coming out of darkness, this is good. Stay there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was an interesting chapter of art. So there was a guillotine that followed that. Okay. There was a bear trap with toilet plunger legs. Like okay. a mechanical walking bear trap thing. And then there was the wing made out of knife blades. Now, where did that come from? Well, the, the knives in particular were like me trying to work through betrayal. Those, those knives were all the times I got backstabbed. And I mm. got, you know, I ended up blazing my own trail. I didn't listen to any of the adults in my life, mm-hmm. which I don't know if some kids just come out that way. That that's, They just have to learn the hard way. Mm-hmm. But I didn't follow any guidance. So I ended up really meeting some dangerous and malevolent characters. And mm-hmm. that had led to like really serious betrayals and backstabbings. And so those, those were the knives in my back that I had reshaped into something less ugly. But I mean, but the image itself though is there's beauty to it. I mean, I feel that danger and stuff because they look like, I kept wondering like, how did you not cut yourself? But Welding gloves. Okay. Because like, you're welding them all together. So every, okay. everything's dangerous in the process. Okay. But why that image? I mean, you could have done something that the whole thing was just uh, like incredibly violent or destructive looking, but it's a wing. And, and so that's so evocative and even spiritual or there's a freedom to it. Or I don't know. This, these are my associations. But what what was it? Why a wing? Um, I, well, I think the wing was, was something hopeful, mm-hmm. you know, and something beautiful and something that you could be proud of mm-hmm. right? as opposed to the, the shame of screwing up. But mm-hmm. all my art was like, you know, it wasn't art school level stuff. It was like really primitive and just raw and, and literal. But I like, you know, they were all dangerous. I built a working guillotine. Mm-hmm. Like you, you could kill yourself with it. Mm-hmm. It was just something that was, um, I don't know, the, the seriousness of that physical object matched the seriousness of my inside world at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we had talks about it when I was 12 or 13 or whenever we started hanging out, but mm-hmm. you know, death has always been right in the forefront of my mind. Like mm-hmm. I feel like when I found a lot of comfort in Christianity er- earlier before we met, because there was a time where it wasn't like I was a Christian because mom was telling me. So it was like, mm-hmm. I was a Christian because I had weighed out the options and I really liked the afterlife and oh, the idea man. of the afterlife. You tune into Christian content, all right, documentaries and movies and TV shows, and um, there's often this idea that there's more, and it's mm-hmm. not just the end. And for a kid who would lay at night and just essentially meditate deeper and deeper and deeper into what does not existing look like, mm. that was beautiful. But anyway, mm-hmm. I mean. Uh- I'm really grateful for this conversation. I mean, for, for a number of reasons, but, but one is like, and you made some comment about like, well, this wasn't whatever, like trained art or whatever, but it's so honest and real. And I I don't know what art is. I'm not an artist, but my hope is that to encounter things that sort of wake me up or bring me to the truth, even if it's a dark truth or make me feel more alive. What I hope for myself is not to be in that numb state. And I put myself in that state a lot, like watching television or eating food or scanning social media or other mindless times. But it's so great to be awake. And like, that's what I'm feeling when you're describing this, like the wing of knives. There's something there that's just 
beautiful. And what's when you say like you're meditating on death, and, and Christianity in some ways is a meditation on death. Like you go into a Catholic church and there's a dead body on the right. cross in the front, a tortured dead body, and we're just going to look at this thing every Sunday. And there's something like thank you for telling me the truth, right? If you walk into a church and you see that tortured dead body, it's like that's real. This is what life is like many times. This is what's happening to many people on our planet. This is what's happening to the planet itself. You know, it's this kind of death and suffering. And then you see what what arises in the presence of it. That's why it's interesting to me. You say like what arises in the meditation on betrayal is hope or a wing. I wonder like when you're saying when you're younger, you're meditating like what's like to not exist. And you're holding that against these images of the afterlife. But I wondered if they were disconnected for you, though. Like, it's like one's a set of stories of the afterlife or beautiful images or whatever. Or did the images feel like they were in connection to the annihilation or the sense of death? With what drew me to Christianity? Yeah. I think it was just the the hope of, of it all. Mm-hmm. You know, there's I, some promise or hope. Yeah, there's some promise or hope. And it's actually, I wish it was emphasized, as an adult looking back, I wish it was emphasized way less. The hope and all that in the yeah. afterlife. Yeah. Yeah. So I I really have come to love and enjoy the Bible. I do a moral reading, less so okay. than a spiritual reading. Mm-hmm. But it's basically a library of books. It, right. It, you know, and it's not one book. It's a library of everything these people thought were important. Mm-hmm. And there's so much utility in it. Like in my 30s, I see that more than in my 20s. In my 20s, I was a raging atheist. Yeah. Who would love to tell you how silly you are. <laughs> and, well, and, and you might be right on a lot of levels. So I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of silliness in Christianity or ridiculousness or harm. Yeah. Oh, and I oh, consider yeah. myself a Christian and a lifelong Christian, but you know. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot of that in humans. Yes. Yeah. I'm not sure one outdoes the other. Yeah. But see, I see like the story of Jesus. And again, maybe this is all get edited out, but I see what if that became an image, like an artistic image of the soul's journey. So you think like we're all born under threat, like Jesus is in the, in the, in the manger. And we're all tempted when Satan takes Jesus out and gives him all these temptations or these false temptations. And then we're all kind of headed towards this death on the cross and betrayal, right? So that's the soul's journey. And the only way you actually know the afterlife is if you go through that death and suffering that otherwise it's just a story unless you actually know it for real. I mean, you're someone who knows something about death and resurrection at some level. I mean, you've gone through suffering and in the stories I've heard you tell and things falling apart or your sense of self not working anymore. And then you had to kind of go through that and rebuild. And when you speak from that place, I hear a lot of truth or a lot of reality that you know, and that there's kind of a death and resurrection there, or no, am I getting that wrong? Or am yeah, I-, I think it, it really works well from a utility standpoint. Oh, that's how you, okay, that's what you mean. In this lifetime, okay. in this one lifetime. I really believe yeah. heaven and hell, those are here. I have been in hell mm-hmm. during this lifetime. So how did that hell match what you thought it might be when you were younger? I was never really worried about going to hell. not because i was so great yeah but uh fear was just not the motivation Mm -hmm. i i think i wasn't even motivated necessarily to get to heaven right i was motivated to have something after this if my consciousness here is going to end someday can we extend that Yeah. Yeah, which is funny because consciousness for me has been a mixed bag it's been really painful i have i don't know how much of it is nature or nurture but 
if you want to talk about like where people wake up and what their general mood is like mine is i think lower than the average person Mm -hmm. (laughs) either that or people are just really good at covering it up (laughs) you know but I, i wake up in pain often and despair often and often getting into the day is about figuring out how to go from there to something more manageable but the baseline is low so it's mm-hmm. funny that i would want more or maybe the promise of relief but anyway let's start we're going okay i know i'd rather have this conversation but we will okay <laughs> yeah we're not going to change a thing okay but i am going to ask the first question i always ask which in this case is not the first question but mark who are you well i mean if i could the first thing's coming you know i'm, I'm a husband i'm a father I'm someone who wants to be a good friend. I'm someone who wants to serve my community. I'm someone who wants to love, but I love badly. That's what comes to me. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean by love badly? I sometimes, you know, sometimes I, I fool myself. I think I'm doing something for someone else. It's actually for me, or somebody is giving me a lot of signals that they need some care, and I either don't pick them up or I don't want to pick them up. I don't. I don't. I don't listen. Um, because I want to do my own thing. So there's a way in which I am still trapped in myself that can make me incredibly depressed or sad sometimes or or kind of fill me with yearning, like, you know, will I ever get free of my habits of thought and, and being? You know, I'm 55. It's getting close here. So, like, <laughs> is, there, is, there, is, it, is this going to happen or not, you know? So as somebody, like, as I think it was Freud would call it the ego ideal, right? Like when you close your eyes, there's that kind of like that, that person that you see that you, you could be if you tried really hard. What is the direction that you're steered towards? I guess what's painful, and I don't know about how you experience this or not, but I have little moments when I'm free. I mean, just little glimpses. I mean, it might be just I'm sitting having coffee on the back deck and I just have forgotten myself for a moment. And I'm just taking in the clouds and the light and I'm kind of just, I'm not having any critical thoughts of myself or others. There's kind of a gentleness kind of descends. And I'm grateful for my life and I feel alive in a beautiful way. And then it goes away, right? Immediately. So I want to be in that space a lot more. And there are times when I'm with people like that too, where it's like, I have all the time in the world for this person. I, I feel generous. I feel patient. I'm not annoyed by mouth sounds or, you know, or what they're wearing that day or the fact that they're not cleaning the kitchen the way I asked, you know, or something like that, where I'm just not in that reactive space. I'd like to not be in a reactive space. I'd like to be more just free and open and accepting, but I tend to be controlling. That's often uh, what I'm praying for. And I pray now too. I don't know. Okay. I, I want to be more patient and more kind and it's a real struggle. Like, I think I have a lot of moments of being a really patient Mm -hmm. and kind father, Mm -hmm. patient and kind son, patient and kind friend sometimes. But, you know, the people who are in my life, it's like you cannot compare to what you hear from this show to, to what it's like to be with me. As mm-hmm. I imagine, you cannot compare what you, the listener, the person listening right now, what you share publicly to, to what it's like to really be with you. We're like, you know, these really screwed up people. Yeah. And like a lot of us. Yeah. Yes. And I'm one of them. You know, so sometimes you just get lucky, right? You just happen to be in that patient, generous space. Other times I've noticed like, not that I stay faithful to this, but I can do a couple things to get myself in that space. Like maybe take a moment outside before I interact with others or take a walk or get better sleep or something like that. Sometimes those things kind of help me. Usually for me, it's 
I don't really allow myself to receive much love. It's like the aperture on a camera, like it's pretty tight. So we just had Father's Day not too long ago. My daughter wrote me this really beautiful card. And I noticed, I, I just scanned it because I noticed it was really heartfelt, really beautiful things, and it was too much. And it was just a little thing I noticed, like, why can't I just slow down and read this thing? And uh, so I brought it actually with me, <laughs> you know, just like carry it around, like, slow down. She's just trying, she wants to tell you these things. Just take it in. It's really hard. And I think it's not conscious. It's my nervous system, my body, everything sort of says, don't look directly at it. You'll be annihilated by love. <laughs> a previous guest on the show, Gay Hendricks, would say, oh, that's your upper limit. Like right where you look mm -hmm. away. Like that's your mm -hmm. that's your upper limit. It's a great episode. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, I think you'd get a kick out of it. Yeah. I have to ask though, because one of the interesting things about growing up and becoming an adult is when we met in the mind of 12-year-old or 13-year-old Sam, you're just a character in my life. Right. Right? You're just this, <laughs> the fun uh, Sunday school teacher who tried harder than all the other Sunday school mm. teachers. I remember you ended up moving, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you yeah. ended up moving and I was bummed because it meant we huh. were going to go back to just like you were really right. adaptive and really like, right. like I think you explained pretty well trying to work with what I showed up with. Right. And so I was, I was bummed when you left, but as an adult, now you, you look at those people that were just a character in your life and you go, like, I wonder who that guy was. Like really, besides just who you were in the Sunday school room. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how the hell you got here. Because the show is kind of multiple parts, but one of the things I love to hear is, is the journey. Your new mm -hmm. book, Between Listening and Telling, is about stories. There are shows that I think do a good job of just saying, hey, this is what I think you should do. And that's not what I'm drawn towards. I kind of want to know, well, how'd you even come up with that to begin with? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And... Well, you know, it's interesting. I've been trying to get the exact time we were together, but right around that time, my dad died in a car accident and it was sudden and I was really close to my dad. So I was grieving during that time. And then my daughter was born right around that time. So it was also chaos at home. You know, it was like she was up all night with this beautiful daughter while I was kind of in this massive grief, you know, at that, at that time that you didn't see and I wasn't showing. My story is a lot about my dad. You know, I'm the eldest my dad was this very charismatic figure. There, there's a way, in fact, I felt connected to you. My dad was not a, as big of a celebrity as your mom, but he was in these certain circles. Like he would speak at these conferences, 3,000 people, 5,000 people, stuff like that. He was, he was uh, sort of the godfather of youth work or youth ministry in the church. So he wrote all these curriculums. He was a dynamic speaker. He won the National Toastmaster speaking contest. He was incredibly funny and alive and dynamic. And he was a guy who didn't put up with bullshit. So he loved the Christian life, but he, he also had a magazine that mocked and made fun of Christian leaders. It, was, it didn't take advertisements, kind of this crazy mad magazine of Christianity. So there was a lot of humor in it too. And I just loved the guy. I just loved being around him when I could get any time. And I loved watching him speak and kind of do his thing. He was on the road all the time. So a lot of my life was formed by that absence. His dad was really fun, but he's not hes not really accessible or he's mm. not really here. Yeah, I, I'm having other memories. I can't relate to that at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, 
You know, it was funny because your mom might have been at her peak around that time. Like, I think she was on the cover of People, People's Magazine around that time, like Traveling are Mercies. You, are you out. saying it's all downhill? <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of her celebrity career, yeah. she was on, uh, she just really launched around that time. And, um, and I remember being at like Christian education meetings, she would talk about you and I'd pull her aside. And I didn't really know her and I was kind of in awe of her, her success and stuff. But I said, you shouldn't talk about Sam in these meetings. Like there's a lot of groupies in these meetings, actually. They're like, they're saying they're here to teach Sunday school, but they're actually here to be around you. And so I wouldn't make jokes about Sam or talk about Sam. And I remember writing her a long email about that too. Because I had had the same thing happen to me. My dad would use me. and I'm that guy now too. Are you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right, because your son's 12 or 13. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I remember having a couple of conversations with her about that. And I, she wrote something and I said, ah, I would take this out. Like, and um, She didn't. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> not if it worked. Yeah. <laughs> not if it worked, you know. Um, yeah, so, I, so that, that's why I felt a similarity to you in some ways. Because I was like, wow, he's got to carry that. He's, everybody knows about Sam's you know, growing up. Yeah, I'm 32 years old and people will still introduce me at a party as Anne Lamont's son. Yes, yeah. The so, question is, will I ever be Sam? Yes. Right? Yeah. So that's, I went into the same profession as my dad, so I would be at these massive conferences, same thing. Mike, Mike Iaconelli's son, Mike Iaconelli's son. I spoke at this thing. They asked me to be the keynote speaker in England. It was like 5,000 people at this conference, at this uh, Christian festival called Greenbelt. I was like, wow, I can't believe they're asking me to do this. You know, so I'd written my first book and they only wanted me there because my dad had died. And I remember all these people laying on the grass. And when the talk got over, they all, all these people lined up. They all wanted to say something about my dad. Nobody said anything about my talk. And one of the people said, you know why we're all laying on the grass? Because your voice sounds like him. And we wanted to hear him. So I know a lot of this, you know, you're talking about where I had to struggle with that kind of thing. So, so my life story is a lot about and I tell it in the book, a lot of that relationship. And luckily, before he died, I, I got really pissed at him and confronted him about a lot of these dynamics. Cool. We, we went to the coast for three days. How and, close to the end did you wait? Uh, this was a year before he died. Cool. I'll, so, I'll wait about that time, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Annie, if you're listening, whenever he confronts you, you got one year yeah. from that moment. But, um, yeah, yeah, we went to the coast, and I just blasted him about, like, we're not here for this and upset about this and this stuff. And, and he, he started to leave at one point. He was so hurt, you know, but I was really grateful for that because he did stick it out and was willing to hear my side of the story. And yeah, I guess it was a year from then we, we kind of marked it, spent a day together. And then I think a month or two after that, he was in a car accident and I got to kind of finish that up. So I went, I followed my dad in his profession. I went into youth work. I went into the church and there were a lot of really beautiful things about that. And I felt like I grew up with a healthy form of Christianity. But, uh, you know, my dad was a speaker. I wanted to get into contemplative practices, which are about silence and meditation. So I went that route. And so I was hanging out with monks and nuns and trying to figure out this mystical side, which was, was in a way a kind of fuck you to my dad. Like, I'm going to be in the silence and solitude. You're this big speaker. I'm going to go the other way. But it was also a way I was trying to chart my own path. Yeah. So I did that for a while. Eventually, I found the success I wanted. Eventually, I earned my way to the same platforms my dad had. And that's when I had a breakdown. <laughs> you know? I can't relate to that at all either. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> well, first of all, I've never gotten close to where my mom well, is, I mean, obviously. 
Yeah, but in the little world I was in, kind of hit the peak there. I was on ABC News, World News Tonight with Peter Jennings, you know, and I'd done this work. And pretty much about a month after that, everything fell apart. And I lost my faith. I lost my sense of self. It was, you know, because that's what was driving me. I thought I was on this spiritual journey, uh, which I was in a sense, but I was also trying to get my dad's attention, trying to heal that dad wound. And when I reached that success, it became obvious to me what was really driving me. And I was ashamed and lost my bearings of who I was or what was going on. Um, Dark night of the soul. Dark night of the soul. You want to talk about it a little bit? Yeah. I mean, it's funny you mentioned that. Like, um, I got really interested in Dark Knight of Soul around that time because what I started learning is there was, like I would look down, everything seemed to be falling apart. I didn't really have a sense of faith. I didn't have a sense of myself. Um, I was hard to live with. But if I looked down, my heart was still trusting. Like I hadn't, I wasn't in a kind of a, I wasn't in a fucked up place. I mean, I was just, it was just that everything I'd, believed about myself had fallen apart but a deeper part of myself was still still moving forward and still had a sense of love and acceptance you know it, it was holding the mess that I had become and my understanding of the dark night of the soul is that's what happens it's like all your ideas of God and ideas of yourself turn to sand and blow away but there's a deeper reality Ash. Ash. I like, did you ever read Iron John by Robert Black? Yes. Yeah. I love that imagery of doing the ash work. Yes. Yeah. But there's, a, if you allow it and don't resist it, there's a sort of deeper truth that's waiting to emerge. And that's what happened for me. Yeah. Whereas all of a sudden, the only thing that comforted me was just silence. If I could just be in silence, that felt honest. Everything else I didn't trust, anything I said, anything I thought, anything around me, I didn't really put much weight in, but I trusted the silence. What did it look and feel like to lose your faith as a youth yeah. minister? Is that the title? Help, help well, me. at the time, you know, we're here in San Anselmo. I was at the seminary here in San Anselmo, San Francisco Theological Seminary. I had just developed this national platform where I was teaching these contemplative practices to all the major denominations, all your downtown churches, your Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist. I've been on these news shows. The Wall Street Journal did a two-page thing. And this is right when everything falls apart, right as everything is finally built. And I have this program and I have this uh, huge grant to do this work. I have book contracts. But meanwhile, feel that I'm full of shit and I don't know what's real and what's not. I've lost my bearings. I'm in that dark night. Yeah. I, I can't tell what's real. At the time, I had two colleagues you know, who were like, who could see what was going on. And beautifully, they just said, okay, well, let's start the work day just sitting in silence for a half hour with you. Was it a secret? Not to them. Okay. Not to them. In a seminary, can you say, I'm, I'm questioning my faith? Is that kind of like uh, um, frowned upon? Most of the seminary didn't care about what I was doing. So nobody would, add, no, you know, the other okay. uh, the professors, I was kind of doing this project on the side of it that uh, was its own thing. Yeah, and I, I guess, yeah, yeah. And then the spirituality, there was, like, there was a Catholic nun there, Elizabeth Liebert and others. You know, they would look at me like, yeah, this happens. Yeah, this is part of it. I was uh, 33, so I was a year older than you. And that's, you know, I don't know if you know this, but Carl Jung and others talk about your Jesus year. So I was in my Jesus year. I'm just, you know, nothing. <laughs> I don't have to do anything too serious. I'm just waiting for that 33 to cash in. Your Jesus year is coming. Yeah. That's right. 
So they just sat with me in, in silence. Uh, there was a contemplative musician who did this like meditative music. He used to do retreats with me. And I would tell him like, when I'm up there, I don't even believe what I'm saying, you know? <laughs> kind of a problem. Huh? Yeah. Well, and the stuff I was saying was like, I was teaching these practices mostly like, okay, so we're going to do these things. And this comes out of this tradition and this is what can happen. And this is probably a lot of stuff that's said on this podcast, you know, about the ego relaxing, all this kind of stuff. But I didn't know. I didn't believe any of it or I, I didn't know what I was saying was true or not. I didn't believe it. It's just that I didn't know what was real and what wasn't. And the musician said to me one time, and I told him, like, I don't know if I can keep doing these retreats. And he said, do you think I'm feeling it every time I'm playing these damn meditative songs? They're incredibly boring. You know, <laughs> <laughs> these prayer songs, they're not musically interesting. The words aren't interesting. It's not about me. It's about the people. The people need me to sing this song, so I sing this song. So he's like, do your job. That helped a ton. And it also kind of lowered my sense of self, too. Like, I'm nothing special because I'm a spiritual teacher. A plumber can bring water into your home. That's pretty magical. That's pretty amazing. I don't know how to do that. Somebody can bring electricity in this room. That's amazing. I'm just a guy who knows how to teach these practices and lead them. I don't have to feel like I am believe every word and I'm sensing God's spirit and everything. Just do your job. The people want you to do this job. Just do it. That's how I slowly got healed. I didn't put any sparkles on it anymore. It's funny. I was listening to a national speaker. This is what this guy does. And he, he happens to have a cross-section audience where he'll end up at all Christian audiences okay. and all atheist audiences. Okay. And he said one of the funnier observations was when he goes to the atheist kind of audiences and he asks, how many of you question your belief in there not being a God? Very few hands go up. Yeah. <laughs> and then he goes to the Christian audience and he goes, how many of you question your faith in a God? He said, almost everybody's hands go up. Yeah. Not to extrapolate too far in that, but the belief in falling out of belief is a really, I think it's a healthy process. And it's an editing process, I think, too. Yeah. For the individual to figure out what is sacred to them. We happen to be a species that gets to choose to some degree what we believe. Yeah. You right. know, and there's, there's some events that can happen that are not your choice that can totally change your beliefs. You know, it could be a traumatic event or it could be a, a holy event for you. But for a lot of life, like, you know, you, you get to decide. And I, I, I love the, the idea that, that these, the questioning is part of the magic, the exploration yes. and figuring out. Because I'll, I'll tell you, you may have heard this if you listen to the show. I'm sorry to everybody listening or watching. I was an atheist for four years. And basically, I got sober. I was a very, very pious meth head, right? <laughs> okay. Very. Uh, ambulance would go by. I'd do the little, you know, I'd do the oh, thing. Okay. I'd say a prayer for whoever the ambulance is picking up. I got sober. I, I was just an atheist. I was like, what the, f what the yeah. hell, mm -hmm. you know? No, we're just a bunch of naked apes on this rock. Right. And what happened was I was about four years sober. I saw a lot of people getting sober, kind of going with the program, getting some higher power, you know, moon, ocean, right. Jesus, all different kinds of gods, but like really doing the deal, praying and meditating. There was just no arguing that the guys that had gotten sober at the same time than me that were doing it were living better than me. Mm -hmm. So I started praying, meditating very ambivalently. Mm -hmm. I still have no conception of what I'm praying to. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that I love the theologists. I love people that take these old messages mm -hmm. and find ways to make them relevant to contemporary audiences. Mm -hmm. One of the things I've 
I've noticed a lot is a lot of the problems we're solving are problems of our own making of becoming less religious. Mm-hmm. You know, like there was a period of time where you know, I, I had waited a long time to lose my virginity. Mm-hmm. Sex was like this very sacred thing. And I got totally fucked over. <laughs> like had sex with the wrong person. Uh-huh. And there was a period of my life where I just had sex with anybody that would let, let me pretty mm-hmm. much everybody mm-hmm. uh did all the things on my bucket list mm-hmm. and um looking at the people that i meet because i'm interested in in religious people but i'll, I'll meet people that waited until marriage mm-hmm. and they'll tell me about their experience and you know I, I only take them seriously if they've been married for a dime you know <laughs> okay if they've got some time under their belt <laughs> and i go oh man you you took something that felt good to me and was fun and kind of more like a, a product mm-hmm. and you ritualize it and made it, you elevated it to something beyond the human world. And there's some, you know, not that I would tell people or especially tell young people like you should mm-hmm. wait till marriage. I don't, right. I don't think that's necessarily the right way, but, but the, the idea of making sex more important than the physical experience I feel like in, in modernity right now, we're right. kind of exploring what the unintended consequences are on the other side. And there are right. many. And I'm right. not saying that one's better than the other. Right. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting and it's difficult to know sometimes like what is, uh, what's the right path, whether it's sexually or religiously or whatever. But, but what I hear you saying is you know, we started with those questions of like all these Christians raise their hands about doubt one of the deaths that we experience in this life is when we don't have any doubt. Like as soon as I'm sitting across from my wife and I feel, I know what she's going to say. I know what she's going to do. I know what's going on with her. As soon as it becomes predictable and I feel like I know the whole thing, that's the end of the marriage. It's only when I am curious and, and and willing to be surprised by her and not have, not seeing her through my own image of her, that she becomes this exciting, interesting thing. And the same is true of faith and the same true of my own belief system or my own sense of self there when you said there needs to be something in there about doubt we have caricatures of christianity and caricatures of religion but when you get into the stories of christianity there's doubt all over the place there's people doubting i mean even like i think it's in the end of the book of matthew it's like and he was risen from the grave and all this and then it says but some doubted (laughs) (laughs) it's one of the last lines you know and it's like why did they put that in there like if you were going to really do some some good propaganda, you would get rid of that line. But because that's part of it too, you know, some doubted whether this they hadn't just been fooled by whatever the hell just happened. I think that keeps us awake and listening and wondering and learning either about another person or about ourselves or about the world around us. Let's, you know, we don't have a necessarily Christian audience. I'm sure there's plenty, yeah. plenty of Christians in the audience. But I, I am interested in your coming back to faith because... I think that there's something universal in there in, in like figuring out what matters to you. So what was it like to come back into? Well, I never, I mean, I wouldn't say I lost my faith. I, I would say all the structures I Some had. Some it. Yeah, yeah, well, 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 all the, yeah, right. All the structures I had for who God was, who I was, what the faith was, that all fell apart. But like I said, when I looked down at my heart, my heart still trusted I mean, maybe it's the same in a, a relationship that goes really wrong, where it's like, I know I don't know who you are anymore. Like some terrible thing happens. I don't know who you are anymore. I don't know who I am. I don't know what this relationship is. But then you look down. It's like 
I'm still in. I still love you. I still want to keep going. It's kind of like that. So I didn't really have words for what faith was. I didn't, I thought I, I could feel I was full of bullshit in a lot of ways, but my heart still moved in that, in this, was, was still believing. And what I mean by that is, I guess I don't really, I, I guess, I, I guess words like belief, I just heard myself say, say believing. I don't really, I don't believe, I would say. I know. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way. But I know my kids love me. Now, they may get angry or attack me or say, I'm not going to speak to you for five years, but I know underneath that we love each other, right? When you sit in silence and contemplation and you do some of these practices where you're, where you're actually deciding, I'm going to try to meet God or I'm going to try to just lay myself out here in, my, in the mess that I am and see if there's anything real here. When you do that time and time again, you feel something real and it can't be named, and the religion doesn't name it well, but there's some truth there. And I couldn't deny that I had experienced those things, even if I had no structures for it. That makes sense. So so my, my loss of faith was a loss of my own constructions of faith. I still know there is mercy within mercy within mercy somewhere in the center of all this because I've experienced it at different times when I was desperate and um, and it would be a lie to tell you I haven't touched that you know even though I wouldn't trust anything I say <laughs> if that makes any sense you know? so without using any Christian imagery what is God well first of all I say reality reality and and I rarely live in it I'm mostly in a false reality. I'm mostly an illusion, uh, living in illusion. So it's it's some it's the real within the real, which can be really dark. Death is real, so it's reality. It's also I would also call God sort of the loving companion. There's some. I don't know when your son was little, if he followed you around when he was two or three years old, and would tag on your pant leg or something. Just didn't want you to be far. God's something like that for me. Just some quiet, loving companion that when things get quiet enough, it's just like, okay, I'm here. That's about all I know. <laughs> all right. That's a tough one. <laughs> you know, that's about all I know. And so, and so in, in the Christian faith, I watch, I'm watching this image, this, I'm watching this Jesus trying to stay connected to that reality, trying to stay in the real, trying to stay close to what's loving and generative in the midst of violence or false projections or messed up hurting people. I'm watching him do that. And I, when I see that and I read the stories, it, it tells me, yeah, that's the struggle I want to be in, in my own way. You know, I want to try to stay in the real and I want to stay honest. I want to try to be loving. So let's talk about your book. Okay. <laughs> Between the listening and the telling. Uh, yes. Now that anybody who's been hurt or harmed or turned off by Christianity has now turned this, you know, stopped listening. From oh, yeah. And the Christians are mad at you. <laughs> and the Christians are mad at me because your, I, I, your I, God is not their God. Yeah. Right? And I said some scary things there, too. So now it's just you and me. Yeah. And uh, yeah, one other. That and one, Reese. Right. And the one lonely person who's on a long drive, and this is the only podcast they have downloaded. The book. So the book is, so in all my work, like we're talking about contemplation and stuff, I, I trust experience. It's sort of like you and I were talking about when you were in Sunday school. Like I trust people 
and I trust what they're experiencing. So if you come in and say, I'm bored, I trust, I'm not going to tell you you're not bored. You're bored. Or if you tell me the beach is where life is, okay. You tell me, I feel like death is near, okay. I trust you. I was interested in contemplative practices because it actually asked us to slow down and pay attention to what's here, to take a long, loving look at the real. What's real? And if we do that, we're going to come closer to what we're all longing for. The book is about story, and story is the way we communicate our experience. So so like when you say, like, I, tell me your story, you're trying to say, okay, you may be talking a lot of ideas, but what do you actually know? Like, what have you lived? What have you suffered? What have you overcome? That's exactly what I'm <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Right. And tell me the shit, you know, what's real for you and what do you actually know? Because, and, um. And even then, I might not express it correctly. But story tries to, tries to say, I saw my dad on these stages. I was kind of the 11-year-old kid who wanted to say, how do I get to be with near this person? You know, how do I get to go backstage and be with my dad? I'm trying to, that's what I know. <laughs> and I'm trying to help you, but I tell stories to help you feel it. So the book is about the power of story, the way in which story helps us communicate our experiences to one another this kind of beautiful thing we do, we're trying to say to one another, hey, this is what it feels like to be me. And every time I tell a story of parenting my daughter or, or falling apart in my faith, I'm in asking you, hey, would you come and feel like what it's like to be me? And in that transaction, I feel a little less alone, more myself. I kind of come home to myself in that interaction. So I, so I did this, I've done this story work with communities, with people who are suffering from school shootings or going through climate change or, or going through personal crises, trying to use story as a way to bring about healing and liberation. Yeah, I, th I think in a way, like, we are stories. Yeah. Like, more than we are meat suits. Be yeah. Because someone dies and what are they, what's left is the story right. of them. Yeah. Oh, you hear Bob? Oh, and then you start telling stories about Bob. Or, oh, did you hear about that stranger who died? The first thing you're going to do is talk about who he was or she, yes. or she was. Yes, yes, we're made of stories that way. And, and, and definitely some of my Native American friends would say that's completely true. It's all story. The truth is that that's all we are is a story. Yeah, absolutely. Feels like that. One of the interesting things I noticed, we just cut an ad for this studio, Square One Studio, trying to rent it out to people. Yeah. Uh, basically, I'm trying to convince people not to write a memoir. Because huh. I end up with piles of memoirs that I don't want to read. Right. And I'm like, hey, just come into the studio, sit down in front of our camera, tell your story. We'll help you figure out the narrative. Like, let's just get it out. Yeah. It'll be like a week process. It will yeah. not be three years of shaming yourself for not writing enough. But anyway. Well, and, and then what a gift that is because there's something you're doing with that is, you know, when we tell stories, I call it full body meaning making. So if I tell the story well you're tearing up when I tear up, your body's tensing when I tense. And part of that is because you're listening to the tone of my voice, you're, you're noticing my body language, that kind of stuff. So if you're here in this studio filming people and catching their voices, when those stories are giving to their relatives, they can, it, it's, it's more accessible. I can feel what my grandfather was trying to say about, oh, yeah. about when he got fired the first time because I'm watching his eyes, I'm hearing his voice and the catch in his throat when he talks about falling in love the first time. And that all communicates to my body. It's about to get really cool in here. <laughs> it's also self-serving because that's the kind of, that's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Like that's what I, you know, if you leave me in a cafe and I end up talking to the person next to me, that we're going to end up doing that anyway. 
you're going to, you're going to ask them for their story. And yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's also, you know, as somebody who is, is interested in death, getting to, to hear people's tellings of their lives and what they gathered and what was meaningful to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not it, only are they giving their relatives or their friends or even strangers who come to the memorial or beyond a gift, uh, they're also giving me a gift as well. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I call, I call the book Between the Listening and the Telling. And there's something, there's a kind of a sacred exchange, right? When that's kind of what probably what happens on this podcast you're, you're hoping for is that someone is willing to tell you, here's what I've lived, here's what I've gone through. And you're giving the gift of listening. And, and so are the people on, you know, who are listening to this podcast. They're giving this, they're offering their attention. That's their gift, and the and the gift of one speaking is to offer their human experience. And story is the way we do that. Yeah. What I was gonna say is, there's a part in the ad, right, where I'm, it's like a kind of smash cut, right? There's like okay. four scenes happening at once as I'm narrating, and so I say, tragic stories, sad stories, great stories, uh-huh. and stories that you can't t- keep your eyes off of. So in the sequence, it's like. Russia invading Ukraine is what goes up on the screen when I say tragic stories. Mm-hmm. And then for sad stories, it's like another round of lockdowns or something right. pandemic related. And then for the good story, I had no idea what to put there. <laughs> None. Zero. Because I'm not looking for good stories to me. I'm looking for, I was looking for like, oh, what's that like pop culture in the zeitgeist thing we all celebrated? Uh-huh. Right. And right. I texted 10 brilliant people and they would say something and I'd go, that's, that's exciting for the Republicans or that's exciting for you lefties. Right. Right. That's not, right. Uh, that's not a shared good story. And it really, man, I was super depressed for three days. Well, it's true. We, we don't really have a shared story right now. We um, don't have a shared good story. Yeah. Right. It's all zero sum gain. Your side loses so we can win. Or vice versa. So it's like these trade-offs right. of good stories. I think a lot of people can point to tragedies and say, hey, that's tragic. Right. But it did make me sad. It did get me going like, wow, like when I was a, a kid, there was a lot of... I, the, did you see Top Gun? The, the new one? Yeah. No. The new Top Gun is a perfect Top Gun. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Why is best, it a perfect Top it's Gun? It's perfect. Okay. It's absolutely. It's exactly what Hollywood should be doing. Okay, give us these kinds of experiences. Yeah. So, so what is, why do you call it that? They, it, it's feel good. Okay. You know, the the, the enemy is like unnamed. Okay. Right? It's like just some bad thrilling, country, but it doesn't say yeah. it's Iran or this Russia or this China. Oh, okay. It's just a joyride, and, and you leave feeling great. How great. I mean, I, I feel like what you're longing for, like when you talk about like we're in these times where we have your story versus my story and we're these political divisions and, and everything else. What can happen, right, if you and I go to that cafe you were talking about and we start telling stories, we could f- feel a sense of connection just in you telling me your story of making art and and I'm listening to that and trying to feel that and I'm telling you my story of writing this book and we feel each other's lives. That space is what this book's about, trying to create that space where we can grassroots storytelling, tell the ground truth to one another. And, and I believe we can get beyond those divisions when we actually sit in a circle and tell our stories to one another. And I think we're all longing for that, just like we might all be longing for Top Gun. <laughs> you know, that experience where everybody in the audience is cheering and you don't know 
that your political enemy is right next to you. And everybody's experiencing at the same time the kind of the thrill of what's happening in that movie. We long for that to happen between us, too. I would actually come back at you and say we're all longing for someone else to do it. But what's true is that everybody wants some kind of like revolutionary moment, right, where one figure comes forward and just says something so goddamn fucking brilliant and perfect and articulate that everybody just agrees. Yeah, we should do that. Right. But the truth is that all great movements that have ever done anything were incrementalists. You can look at the revolutionaries. It always ends badly. (laughs) It always ends badly. You can have a great revolution and you got the new political structure you want. And oops, nobody knows how to keep fresh water coming or keep the the farms working. So these incremental moments are really where it's at. It's not up to a podcaster. It's not up to a a celebrity. It's really up to you and your local community. But we've been sold a terrible lie, Mm -hmm. which is that we are like one thing. And and we're not one thing. We're a ton of different communities. And like the, the national news, especially in the corporate news, has very little to do with what's going on in your life day to day. Oh, and it's oh, exactly. all about who, you know, your town council runs and mm-hmm. it goes from there. It's all about the guys who show up on Sunday and weed the median that the government doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, or the city workers don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, so the question is for me is like, so how do you get, and we, and if you go to those town council meetings or whatever, it's like when you came to Sunday school class, like nobody wants to be there, <laughs> you know, everybody's bored, even the people, it's their job or they're covering it for the newspaper or whatever, you know. So how do you get to the real within the real? What I'm interested in is asking questions that invite people to tell the truth and to, to feel their humanities. How do you transform those spaces? So if I had ran a town council, I would start the thing by saying, okay, what's one interaction you had with a neighbor today that um, where you felt really connected to another person in our town? And people would tell those stories. You know, well, it's kind of funny. I go down this, you know, to the dog park and I met Sam there. We both had dogs and, you know, all this kind of stuff. You would tell those stories and you would, people would go from caricatures into a dull space that's kind of in one part of our brain to, to feeling the full humanity of one another. And suddenly um, those lines between who's in and who's out and, and what matters and what doesn't matter start to dissipate. And now you can focus on something a little deeper. We're all just living in this very small part of ourselves most days. Yeah. And I think we're also pulled into other people's stories. Mm-hmm. Right? You, you just mean by the media and oh, the media, the company you work for. Yeah. Right. So you like, you wake up and you show up at the company and then there's a company story, like whatever you work for. Oh, hey, we're, we're doing such a great job and we've grown this year or we're doing really bad, you know, and this is a very scary time. And, um, you know, that's not your marriage and that's not your relationship with your children. And so, so there's all these kind of, you know, I feel like you have a limited space for story and there's an infinite amount of stories that you can grab immediately. Like when, when people listen to this program. And specifically, um, what I want more is rather than hearing Mark and going, well, that's an interesting story, is to actually dialogue with your ideas and what you're saying. And like they might come to a totally different understanding than what you're saying or mm-hmm. what I'm saying. 
it's not about my story and it's not about your story. When you listen to stories, yes, there's a chance for empathy and compassion. You're having a dialogue with that story because mm-hmm. you're comparing it to your story and you're comparing it to your frame of the world. And they have the ability to change each other mm-hmm. in positive and negative ways. Yeah. Now, now, so here's the way I would go about that, though. I mean, this is this is my perspective on this. So this is my it's you know, your book. We're my end of the dialogue. Yeah. yeah. You get a group of people together and you say, okay, we're going to talk about immigration. Should we build the wall or not build the wall? Or should we let in more immigrants or less immigrants? People are going to show up and they're going to, they already have their minds set and they're going to have their arguments set. And I'm already ready for you to argue for this perspective because I'm going to counter it with this, right? And we don't get anywhere. You get a group of people together and you say, okay, tell, tell the immigration story from your family. Oh, my grandfather came over in whatever, 1892. And we tell those stories it gives us a different experience of one another. When I'm arguing about immigration, I'm in one tiny part of myself. I'm just in this, in my analytical brain. But when you're telling me the story of your grandparents who came over and immigrated and what it was like for them to start their first business, that story, I'm my whole body is feeling it. I'm seeing the food they ate, the house they lived in, the job, they, and I'm feeling your humanity. Now there's a setting where we can address issues more holistically. And something alive can happen, creative can happen. Unfortunately, in this culture, we're just always stuck in that tiny little part of ourselves, this analytical part. And nothing will change as long as you only address that part of me. It's when, you know, I got, in my lifetime, I've watched us go from, if anybody even indicated that they might be in the smallest way gay, their life could be in danger in this high school right now. To, now we have gay marriage. One of, the way that, one of the ways that happened is LGBTQ people started telling their stories. And people started hearing the stories and you couldn't deny. It. I mean, I remember sitting in rooms where people were against this and then somebody would stand up and tell their story. I couldn't help it, but I could feel empathy for them. I could see myself in their story. I could feel those longings. And suddenly the ideas I had in my head kind of were shattered and I had to come up with a new conception of the world and of human beings. That's, how, that's the power of story that I'm trying to work with in this book. It's beautiful. Yeah. So as somebody that works with young people, hopefully to try and influence them in a positive way. If you're trying to distill, listen, this is this is what I want you to know is really important about being a healthy adult in the world. What are the qualities or virtues that you're trying to, to really emphasize? For these young people? Yeah. I mean, there's two, two things I would, I have so many things I want to say to young people, but I guess what I would say is uh, what you are feeling and experiencing matters. You're not crazy. And it's important what you're thinking about and what you're feeling, even though it feels maybe secretive or you can't tell anybody. Look for friends and adults who who you can trust and wait until the time's right and tell them what's really going on inside you. If you can find one other person who can listen to what's going on inside you that you trust, it makes all the difference. So I like to end the podcast the same way every time. And it's an opportunity for you to get your storyteller hat on. If I could hand you a phone right now and on the other end was you at any moment in your life that you would like to talk to and dialogue with, maybe tell them a story, what would the story be? And, and you could say it as if you're, you're speaking to yourself. If I'm speaking to myself in another moment in my yeah. life. So it could be during your dark night of the soul. It could be. No, I know what I would do. I would call there, that, the time in my life, right before the dark night, I was working way too much, and I really abandoned my wife in that time. She had, was home with three kids. 
I was traveling like crazy. I was trying to live the life my dad had lived and I was imitating it and I felt really disconnected from myself and it was really hard on her. And so if I could, I would call that 30 year old self and say, don't recreate the wounds that, that you encountered. Remember what it was like when your dad was gone all the time. Don't do that to your wife. Don't do that to your kids. There's another way. I know it feels like you have to do that. You don't. You can make a different choice and follow the love that's, that, uh, and receive the love that's available to you instead of searching for it on the road. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> and where can we buy your book and where can we yeah. find you? Well, if, if it comes out It comes out on August 8th. You can go to markyacanelli.com or you can go to the nonprofit that does story work called The Hearth Community. I'm going on the road with this book, so I'm coming to little towns and churches and bookstores around the United States, so the tour dates will be set there. And you can come to events where I'll, where actually, it's not going to be me talking, it's going to be me getting you to tell stories. So I hope people will show up to that as well. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Sam. It's nice to reconnect again. It, it was. I'll be looking for the next sculptor. <laughs> sculptor, <laughs> you're going to wait again. a second. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, everybody. Our beloved producer and best friend, Risa Keen, did come down with COVID after two three, some amount of years of not getting it and being the last man standing who hadn't had it. Unfortunately, he did have it. We needed to make sure that he was okay and comfortable. But now we're back in the studio. So we are going to do our best to get kind of back onto the every other week schedule. Thanks for your patience and thanks for sticking around. And I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please get in touch with us if you enjoyed the show. We're reachable. You can go to our website hellohumans.co and get in contact with us. We're growing. We're learning how to produce the best possible hour-ish segment that reminds you that being human is such a gift and it's a mess. And sometimes it's great and sometimes it's terrible. And the light of consciousness of being a human is a whole experience worth experiencing in itself, good and bad. So if you enjoyed the show, It'd mean a lot to me if you took the time to review it. I hope to see you there. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. And until next time, be well. This was recorded at Square One Studio in San Anselmo, California. For more information, you can go to square, the number one, dot studio. That's a website. You're just going to have to trust me. Or you can check it out. Come say hi.